the places to look for this are the places which have seen demand for transport go back to more or less normal levels, even where there is still risk of infection from COVID. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is a teacher in economics and history at the University of Cambridge. He specialises in pandemics, famines and financial crises, but also transport. Previously, he wrote for The Economist and was the editor of their travel blog, Gulliver. Charles Reed, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, you specialise in crises, financial crises, and you specialise in transport. So what do you make of where we are now? Sometimes a week happens in a decade, and then sometimes a decade happens in a week. And I certainly think that there was a few weeks in, in March of 2020 where quite a, quite a few decades have changed happened, um, in that... Um, when people talked about aviation recessions in the past, they were talking about drops in passenger numbers of 10, 20%. When the railways talked about recessions, they meant flatlining numbers. Uh, but we're talking, we, we were talking last spring of complete decimation of transport numbers, complete business models um, no longer worked. And although there will be recovery in numbers eventually, particularly when everyone is vaccinated, everything won't go back to how it was. And I think we'll see quite a lot of change. Some of it was happening anyway, and some of it has been accelerated, but then also um, changes which people weren't expecting happening. Um, So I think the world of transport, even after the pandemic, will look very different from what it looked like before the pandemic. What I mean, obviously, numbers is a big one. So a lot of people are talking about 80, 85, 90% recovery to where they were. Um, Do you think they're right? And if so, is the difference is the delta going to car? Is it behavioral change? Um, Is it behavioral change in, in certain sectors only? Well, that, that's a very interesting question. And I think when we talk about 80, 90% recovery, we have to think about how many, how many years is this over? Because if we're saying, um, for example, in air travel, that the number of passengers will go back to its 2019 level in 2024-2025. Well, actually, that's that's not actually making a full recovery, because if the pandemic hadn't happened, we would have seen passenger numbers rise each year of you know, 3, 4, 5%. And over those four or five years, we could have seen passenger numbers rise 20, 30%. So if we just got back to our starting number, we've still lost 25% of that industry. And the same applies for train transport, for example, um, in that if we were to expect rising numbers in the absence of the pandemic, if we get back to where we started in a in a in a in a few years' times, so that still is a is a massive drop. And I do think that there will be um you know there will be a recovery and that we will go back to exceed our pre-pandemic numbers, particularly you know, passenger volumes, particularly when we're talking in, by the middle of the 2020s. However, if we think of this in terms of number of journeys made per person or numbers of 
number of journeys made per unit of GDP produced. I think that we could see uh, the economy becoming much less transport intensive as people learn new behaviours such as how to work at home. How how can we we do things that we didn't think were possible at home? I mean, if anyone had said it was possible to produce entirely entire weekly or daily newspapers at with everyone sitting um, in their spare bedrooms or on the kitchen table, people would have thought you were joking before before March 2020, when everyone was forced to do it and discovered that you no longer needed to sit for everyone to sit in one newsroom. I've got this slight suspicion that we're all being too, from a transport point of view, pessimistic about the future of work. Uh, and the reason is that when we all had to do everything at home, it was comparatively, in inverted commas, easy because everyone had to do everything from home and you can do that. And I'm very uncertain that the hybrid office is a thing that can be made to work in the long term. And then I think some startups, I've certainly spoken to startups who are planning to go entirely remote. And I think that could work for them. But if you're going to be a corporate and you can't do that, I think you'll find very quickly people end up coming back into the office because the alternative of you know everyone in the in the in the meeting except sort of Clive and Clive's on Zoom, the whole thing then becomes desperately difficult to make work. Well, either you have to. I mean, I think that hybrid offices are very difficult to make work because either you end up moving to one extreme or the other. So either you have everyone working remotely, which means you have no competition over presenteeism so people don't have any worries like that or the 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 problem with the hybrid office is if you think about how do you make it work so if we're still in the immediate post-lockdown period where we're still worried about infections going around um getting everyone to come in in an office on you know tuesday wednesday and thursday well if you're getting everyone to come in on the same days you're just um, maximizing the chance of the entire office going down with down with COVID. However, if you say everyone has to come in on three different days, and so you have um, a lower number of people, people still coming, but a lower number of people, you're not maximizing the amount of collaboration you get and networking with the office because you don't have everyone in the office. So anyway, you work, think about it. There are there are downsides. So I think after the pandemic, you know, offices will either go more and more remote, um, particularly that works very well for startups or for for some corporate organisations, there'll be a return to being fully in the office. So I think we all have a bifurcation of of offices, but some offices will be increasingly remote um, and some offices will, will go back to previous habits to some extent. So this has coincided, and I think to an extent it is a coincidence, uh, with a very different conservative government to any kind of conservative government we've seen for a long time. And certainly in the world of buses, we're seeing a hugely more interventionist approach being taken. I suspect when we see the Williams Review, we'll see a more interventionist approach to rail being taken. Aviation, um, not so much. But of course, you then overlay COVID and the fact that you know, the profit. <coughs> excuse me, the profit margins in these businesses was not 10, 15, 20%. If those are the kinds of margins we're seeing in businesses with substantial fixed cost elements, then it feels like there is a requirement for some kind of government role. Is that a good thing? What what, what are your thoughts? There will have to be an increased role for government here. And I think the big elephant in the room that we haven't touched upon yet is climate change and meeting emissions reductions targets. 
require a complete energy transition away from polluting fuels to clean, cleaner fuels. And the point is, is that this is quite difficult for the private sector to make on its own. The private sector has an important role to play, but it has to be given the incentives. However, I think there is a difference here between government playing a coordinating role and providing certain incentives and government ownership. And I think government ownership could slow down this energy tra transition. I think those who say that there should be a complete renationalization of the rail network of buses, of, um, of airports. The problem is, is this forces the government to invest, borrow lots of money and invest in basically a generation of older technology. And I'll and I'll take a case study from a long time ago, but a previous energy transition from gas lighting to electric lighting. Now, there's a lot of benefits from moving from gas lighting to electric lighting. I mean, it's cheaper, it's cleaner, um, people don't die of carbon monoxide poisoning in their own homes. But this was actually the transition between gas and electricity was actually slowed down in Britain because uh, a lot of the local authorities went and decided to take out big loans to buy um, you know, the gas company. And so it became the municipal gas company. And you know, even liberal politicians such as Joseph Chamberlain in Birmingham were doing this. But the point, but unfortunately, at the same time, the government gave local authorities power over um, issuing permits for the installation of electricity supplies. So if you borrowed several million pounds, like you know, the Corporation of Birmingham did, and you're given power over um, whether people can install a rival um, power su supply in their homes, you're going to try to slow that process down in order to make sure that you can pay your loans back. And that's basically what happened in Britain. And Britain was much slower at embracing electricity than its rivals. And so that was quite a long story. However, it shows that if the government invests in previous generations of technology, there is an incentive for the government to try to prolong it as long as possible, rather than encouraging the change to happen. And therefore, it's better for the government to play the coordinating role to change um, regulation in order to encourage private companies to behave in a certain way and to make this energy transition quicker. This could be insisting that motorway service areas have to have a certain minimum amount of uh, electric car charges. It could be saying that um, rail companies and bus companies bidding for contracts have to um, reduce their emissions by a certain amount by some, some date in the future. Those That's the way to go about this, rather than saying, let's bring back British Rail, let's let's nationalise a lot of regional airports. And the point is, is that there is, this is not, this is not really a party political issue anymore. All the party, major political parties are, are busy nationalising bits of, of the transport infrastructure system. You have uh, the Welsh government buying, um, under Labour, buying Cardiff Airport in Scotland. You have Glasgow Presswick is owned by the Scottish government. Um, you have um, in Teesside, you have the mayor, the mayor bought, the mayor of Greater Teesside bought uh, the local airport and he's a conservative. So I think you're seeing this behaviour across the entire political political spectrum that politicians are, are, are getting interested in this, but whether they use their powers in the right way to make this energy transition faster, I think the jury is out on that. 
So you mentioned uh, the Birmingham example and, uh, and other cities uh, being late to the Electric Party. Are there any other historical examples uh, that could enlighten us in the, the situation that we face in the world of transport at the moment? There, I mean, there have already been other energy transitions. For example, you know, Britain changing from from coal to gas. I mean, the biggest contribution to lower emissions that has been made in Britain so far is going from from coal to gas. And there is actually an argument to say that should Britain have done this early, you know, a decade or two earlier, and was this slowed down by Britain's ownership of, you know, national ownership of the coal mines? The last time we had a, a demand shock in um, transport of this scale, I think, was the Second World War. Um, and it wasn't an equivalent because it wasn't a straightforward reduction, but it was a huge change. And of course, out of that, we saw a huge wave of nationalizations. And it wasn't just a result of the demand shock. It was also the result of a wider public mood at the time. Though, when you look at what's happening in, in the US um, and, and Joe Biden, and you know, in this country, we've got a conservative government, not a Labour government, but actually some of the economic direction is not dissimilar. You feel we, we could be at a not dissimilar moment here. I, that's a very that's a very interesting comparison because I think that is probably the last COVID style shock in that when we talk about the history of modern um, commercial aviation, for example, we're really talking about post nineteen forty five. There was a previous commercial aviation industry, but that basically got um, wiped out by the Second World War. You just couldn't fly any fly anywhere because it was just too dangerous. You've been doing some um, a, a lot of research into the nineteenth century. And uh, one of the things that I know you've been looking at is the railway boom and the subsequent railway bust of the of the mid-century. Uh, that, that's interesting at this moment, especially because of this extraordinary uh, boom in tech stocks, which basically is driving the entire stock market, which in turn is driving the entire American economy. And in transport, you see that especially with you know, the extraordinary valuations that companies like Uber reached without ever making a profit. And you see now this um, you know, the massive valuations of scooter companies uh, that are that are coming in next. What parallels are there with with with, with the railway mania of the mid mid nineteenth century? Well, uh, the 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 more recent research on railway mania is that this is a example of a boom, but not necessarily a bubble. So a boom is saying the, the prices of these shares rose a lot, that railway stocks doubled in just two or three years in the mid-1840s. Um, but a bubble is when um, it, becomes un- uh, they, it becomes unstable. It, it grows, fast, it grows uh, faster than the fundamentals justify. And actually, there's not that much evidence for that in the mid-1840s, in that looking at the multiples on the west of the stock market, looking at the dividends they were paying out, actually, they were fair fair value compared to the rest of the stock market on traditional valuation metrics. Um, so why did, why did they suddenly fall in value? And the answer is actually less to do with the industry itself than, than you might might think. So was it that there's all these colourful stories of these railway projects which never actually got off the ground of, you know, bizarre, bizarre railway schemes between two tiny villages um, in in different counties which didn't stop at anywhere between them. Um, 
and uh, lots of stories about bees which never actually really got off the ground because they were not very good ideas. But these companies and the railways, which were actually built in the 1840s, are still the backbone of the railway network today and did go on to make profits, quite decent profits in the late 19th century. So it wasn't that these companies were worthless, you know, entirely worthless. I mean, this, these companies were not uh, behaving, say, like we work, where there's a question mark over whether this company has any value whatsoever, because it has has no assets and it it, it, it makes huge losses and um, you can replicate its ideas very easily. But, you know, the, that does not, none of those things apply to uh, the railway stocks of the mid 1840s. Instead, it seems that it, it was very much things out, outside this industry which conspired against it, in that you saw interest rates being hiked by the Bank of England from 3 point something percent in 1845 to 8%, which was a record high in the history of the Bank of England since 1694. It reached 8%. Um, and the point is, is that if you're an investor and you think, I could either, you know, um, keep my money at the Bank of England or invest in government stock and get a higher risk-free return, or I could invest it in 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 um, in riskier shares. And so, when interest rates go up, the um, the the valuation of shares as a you know the multiple of their dividend payout or their profits falls tremendously, and. The result is, is that the shares halved in value, but if you more than double interest rates, you expect the value of invest of riskier investments to halve. So if we think of this in terms of valuation metrics, in terms of how high were interest, how high what interest rates were doing, and um what other alternatives investors had to put their money, this is not this is not quite a surprise, but this means that it's not that these com- that you could have a sudden fall in the value of these shares, not because these companies were bad companies that um, that Tesla's never going to make a profit, um, but because of you know interest rates are going up. So I think what's actually a greater risk to the valuation of Uber, the valuation of Tesla, of the valuation of all these electric vehicle startups. Um, who uh, you? Know, uh, we have we have some in Britain. We there's some in America. There's lots of China which have soared, seen their valuation soars. Actually, what happens to interest rates and what happens to the wider economy has will have much greater impact on the valuation of those companies in the years to come than necessarily necessary some of their business decisions. In that you know some of these companies might be profitable in the long term and yet still see their their share share price halve in the years to come if interest rates surge. And the 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 point about the 1840s railway boom and bust not actually being anything to do with the railways is interesting, isn't it? Because there was this kind of, you know, there's been a long-standing myth that it was. It was down to the railways being a bad investment. And to an extent, that narrative flowed through for another century so that at the time of beaching, the narrative would be, we basically built too many railways in this country. There was an investment mania. Railways got built that should never have been built, and now it's the right thing to do to close them. And to an extent, you're saying, well, building railways was sound business in the 19th century. It was it was other other factors that um, caused it to go wrong. Well, it, it was business model. So, you know, the traditional thing is that you have a train with a driver a steam train with a driver and a fireman several carriages and you know one or two people in the guard span on these small very um 
routes with not very much traffic that was not that that was not sustainable in the 60s and 70s as vans and lorries um appeared in competition however that doesn't necessarily mean that with the right business model that these routes would have been completely unviable if you had moved to diesel diesel um uh, rail cars you know where the driver um the driver behaves as both the driver and the conductor and also thinking about how you could have stimulated traffic on some of these routes uh, for example through housing development round um suburban stations i mean this is how railways made their money in the interwar period was that they bought the land round where they were planning to extend or upgrade their lines and um and used the increase in the land values um, of this land to subsidize their development costs. So this is where you see you know, the metropolitan line spreading out into um, northwest, out into Middlesex and um, northwest of London into Buckinghamshire. You see um, southern um, go down into south London. In that these companies discovered a business model where they could um, finance their the upgrading of their lines and then through the, the development of that land for housing it induces demand which made them those lines profitable so the point is is that was this um more of a failure to choose the right business model from thinking this line is never ever going to make any money so let's close close it down in that there was some very flawed cost benefit cost co cost benefit analysis going on in the going on in the beaching report um and interestingly i was talking on the freewheeling podcast a few weeks ago to the mayor of cambridgeshire uh james palmer who is planning on building a series of tunnels under cambridge and running autonomous pods underneath them and linking them out into the villages um of course he is um but actually when you talk about how he's planning to fund that project it's very very similar uh, it's buying up land and building houses on it in the in, in the surrounding area and it's doing it in a, a targeted way but it was a funding model that you don't really hear spoken of very much but i mean should we be going back to that model right now I mean, if we've got we were just talking earlier about the fact that there is a demand crisis in transport and out of covid we're going to have a demand lag and either the government needs to pay or what's going to happen well you know should we be saying you know there's a, there's an awful lot of suburban railways not sorry not suburban stations there's an awful lot of stations in the 50 miles around london that with this new potential for hybrid working could be commuter stations into london of course they're all in the green belt and so you can't build stations should should we be saying we create a polo mint around each station and we do build houses there and we do stimulate new traffic with the railways well i think it is a a model which Britain should should embrace, and I think there is somewhere else in the world which has embraced this and still you know and, and still operates in this way. And that country has some similarities to Britain, and that country is Japan. So, the other side of the Eurasian continent, it's a, a small island off the side. It it refers to Asia as something which is not Japanese, just like Britain likes to refer to Europe as you know something something that Britain is not part of and that people used to say I'm off to Europe on holiday which would make Americans very confused <laughs> thinking that Britain is is part of that J Japanese people are exactly the same but and Japan is a much longer longer island but it has a similar you know it has a relatively dense population like like Britain um 
Britain and public transport is is vital because there's just not enough street space for all Japanese people to have their own cars, just like like the southeast in in Britain. And Japan still builds railways like this. You know, the high speed rail was built partly on that principle. Other commuter lines in big cities are are developed and built on that principle that the companies get some of the share of the uplift of the value of the land. I suppose the question is should should um should the railways or should the local authorities you know buy up the land themselves or levy a land value tax and and that's a big question that um politicians need to start uh, talking about um but i think that um these city region mayors are a good step on the way to getting there because um these city mayors, certainly um, the Cambridgeshire one, has now have power over planning permission, and they have powers over public transport. And I think the point is you need to bring those two bits together. In that the problem in the past was that central government was far more responsible for public transport than local government was in the past. Yet it was local government down to the district and the parish council level, which ran the planning pl- planning departments. And so and so the incentives were not in line uh, in, in aligned. So once um if local authorities got given, you know, they they want to build these houses or take an area out the green belt, they would be up up in up in outrage. But if this is comes along with, you know, promises that this is going to be part of an infrastructure package, and in return, you get an upgraded station, you get upgraded public transport, you get upgraded public services. You'll get a lot less, a, a lot less um, nimbyism about it. And it's, I mean, it all depends to an extent, doesn't it? And levels of centralisation that we do see, because this government does seem to have a slightly centralising tendency um, and a slight desire to pull all the levers itself, and that then risks disempowering local authorities from being able to make some of these decisions. Because I agree with you. I think if you, you nimbyism is a very powerful force, but you know, if you come up with a scheme that's economically generative and then share that with some of the affected people, I imagine an awful lot of people who would object to something wouldn't object to it so much if they got 50 grand. Well, exactly. So if you say that, um, you know, local local people will get some of, you know, some of the benefits. So, you know, airport expansion is an example. So, you know, saying that um, if people vote for, vote for um, the airport to be expanded, that some of the money will um, will go go their way, whether that's for local authority or directly to the council taxpayers. Because I mean, there is a there is an airport in Britain which has expanded several times, um, albeit not with another runway yet, but has seen um, a lot of expansion, sees a lot of support from its local authority, which is Luton Airport, um, and that's because the council owns the airport and. The, the success of that airport massively subsidizes that count that council's spending on public services so much so that when all the passengers disappeared during covid the council more or less went bust um but if you see the improvements which have been going on in Luton you know in that um it got a new train station they're now building um a parkway train station they're now building a new um people mover between that parkway train station and the airport terminal itself, which I believe is about to open very soon. Um, if 
if you look at the level of spending on you know spending on ex- expanding capacity and the amount of local support for there it's it's extraordinarily high but that's because that's an example of somewhere where the planning of you know the planning authority and the airport itself are the are, that's that's the same person so you don't have this conflict between different different agendas so maybe the the solution for Heathrow is for the London borough of Hounslow to to own it. <laughs> That's a that would be a big piece of big piece of borrowing there. <laughs> Fine, final question. Um, imagine, yeah, a lot, a lot of the leaders of the Three Wheeling Podcast are transport operators or local authorities who are now dealing with this world of suppressed demand that we spoke about earlier. What thoughts do you have um, looking at you know, other places and and the past on how to rebuild demand as quickly as possible? the places to look for this are the places which have seen demand for transport go back to more or less normal levels, even where there is still risk of infection from COVID. And so the place to look is at the American domestic um, airline industry. Okay, so international traffic in and out of America is still very low, and this is partly because there's still a travel ban between Britain, um, sorry, Britain, America, but also Europe and America. Um, but if you look at domestic demand, it is actually going back to surprisingly normal levels. And I think what 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 happened, particularly in America, is that the industry has got together to think about how do we persuade um, potential passengers that it's safe to fly again. So hence, um, airlines in America have very strict mask mandates. Uh, they do a, a lot more cleaning of the planes than they used to do. Delta kept their middle seats empty in order to help social distancing. And I think that the industry, that the airline industry in America has been far more successful at persuading people um, that it is safe to fly. And I think that is going to be, that's how to get demand back to normal level. Persuade people that that it's safe to travel again. And I think the way to do that, whether it's bus or transport, is there's going to have to be far more cleaning, far more rules such as wear masks. But it's also making a big show of it and trying to um, tell people the changes which have been made and to be clear clear as possible about these changes that have been made. I think the worst thing to do is saying, oh, there's no danger whatsoever or just do nothing. Um, do, do nothing. Because I don't think you'll restore confidence by doing nothing but i think that's the key thing it's persuading people it's safe any final thoughts on what more could be done to stimulate demand in this new environment how did michael o'leary um a decade or two ago encourage people to fly to places in the middle of nowhere whether that's you know um in uh in which is nowhere near brussels or bouvet which is bouvet which is Airport, which is nowhere near Paris, and the answer is um, by selling tickets at uh, off uh, off peak times at ridiculously low prices, and then you know raising more revenue on more crowded trains by reducing trains or or aircraft or buses um, by raising prices, which encourages social distancing, raises more money and encourages social distancing, but. 
but selling um, very cheap tickets at off-peak times, and that encourages new travel behaviours, that there will be people tempted out of their cars if they can travel at you know, 10 o'clock at night on the train for 1, 1p or 50p. But that encourages them to take up new behaviours or to arrange their life, which makes them dependent on that train. And then over time, when demand recovers, um, those prices can um, those prices can be raised to economically sustainable levels, and uh, but people keep on with their newly beha- learned behaviours. Great. Well, let's see what happens. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to see what the future holds. Thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Free Reading Podcast. So that concludes the Free Reading Podcast for this week. Thank you very much indeed to economic historian Charles Reed for joining me. Thank you to you for joining me. And join me again next week for another edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Goodbye.